Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Big E here. This is Law for Virginia Law Enforcement Officers. What do you need to know as a law enforcement officer in Virginia to better strengthen and serve your community? Uh, thank you so much for the feedback you guys have been giving me when I see you. Uh, it's great to hear that you are liking the podcast, that it's helpful to you. Um, this week, there's not a lot going on in the General Assembly, not a lot going on in the Courts of Appeals. And I thought I would take a minute and examine use as a force in jails and prisons, uses of force by uh, law enforcement officers, but not against people who are out in public, but people who are incarcerated, either pretrial or serving a sentence or whatever. Because it turns out that the rules are very different. And I think, uh, you know, law enforcement may assume, and I, I know, you know, that some officers do assume that the rules are the same, but they're really not. They're really very different. And I want to talk about how, because I think it's worthwhile uh, whether you're a law enforcement officer who is working the road and occasionally goes to the jail, you know, might find yourself at a jail or a sheriff who might work either uh, lo locations, uh, it's important to know how the rules are different, right? Uh, because you can end up with liability with an inmate uh, regarding civil liability or indeed criminal liability for uses of force, but also for failure to protect those inmates and failure to take care of their medical needs. You know, it's not a surprise probably to you that uh, that the standards for uses of force against inmates uh, are different, but you also have obligations to inmates for their safety, their medical care that you don't have to the general public. And that's something that's important to be aware of if you're dealing with or working with inmates. Uh, and inmates have rights, uh, First Amendment rights, access, rights to access to the court, uh, especially if they have disabilities. So uh, I do want to talk about some of that stuff as well. You know, we've talked before about, you know, federal liability under 42 U.S.C. 1983, right? Liability for deprivation of civil rights. And if you're working patrol as a patrol officer, that's most often going to come from the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution, right? Which governs how law enforcement and citizens interact and what law enforcement can do with the, when dealing with a person in public. But when it comes to somebody who's incarcerated, pretrial or serving a sentence, it's not the Fourth Amendment at all that governs uses of force. Instead, it's actually the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution, right, which prohibits cruel and unusual punishment. And also the Fourteenth Amendment, obviously, is incorporating the Eighth Amendment. But when we talk about uh, uses of force against inmates, most often we're talking about issues of the Eighth Amendment. So all along through this podcast, we've been talking a lot about Fourth Amendment and how that's really the key to, to lawsuits under 42 U.S.C. 1983. But anytime you're dealing with an inmate, the standards are going to be very different, right? Um, and so, again, because if you're concerned about a lawsuit in 42 U.S.C. 1983, uh, if it's in federal court, you have issues of qualified immunity. In state court, you might have issues of sovereign immunity. And we'll talk about how that uh, plays in here. But both of those kinds of immunities, right, qualified immunity, which covers any government worker who's being sued in 42 for deprivation of civil rights in federal court, and sovereign immunity, right, which is a protection for any government worker who's in state court. Uh, and again, these are not real immunities, but they're just, they're slightly higher burdens that a plaintiff has to bring. Both of those still exist in lawsuits regarding uh, prisoners, just like they do with lawsuits involving individuals on the street. So when you're dealing with an inmate, right, you're thinking about liability that might come from use of force. But again, unlike with a citizen on the street, you might face liability for failure to protect, failure to take care of medical needs, uh, failure to uh, afford them the rights that they might have, rights to freedom of speech, freedom of religion, access to courts, that kind of stuff. And those are things that you don't normally see when you're dealing with uh, a citizen on the street. 
Uh, because, you know, the Fourth Amendment governs uh, police citizen encounters, and it talks about arrest, and it talks about booking. But once somebody becomes an inmate, right, that's where the Eighth Amendment steps in. And it applies to force used on pretrial detainees and also inmates serving a sentence. And the Eighth Amendment, as you know, prohibits cruel and unusual punishment. So what's cruel and unusual punishment, right? Uh, well, in the eyes of the U.S. Supreme Court, cruel and unusual punishment is anything that is unnecessary and constitutes an, a wanton infliction of pain. That is to say, an infliction of pain that has no legitimate penological justification, right? So, what you know, it's not good faith use of force to maintain or restore discipline. If I have a purpose to use force, if I have a reason for using the force, right, that my, and my reason is attached to some kind of, something attached to my running of this jail, then that's not cruel and unusual punishment. Uh, so using minor force, slightly pushing somebody, shoving people, if it doesn't result in injury, that's not an infliction of pain, right? That's not an infliction of pain with no justification. So that wouldn't be cruel and unusual punishment. So notice, right, uh, when I'm on the street dealing with a civilian, you shove a civilian, you push a civilian, and you have no justification for it. That's an assault. But if you're in the jail context, that's not an assault, right? It's not a violation of the Eighth Amendment uh, because, again, the standard is going to be different uh, under the Eighth Amendment. Um, and the Fourteenth Amendment of the Constitution also prohibits law enforcement, prohibits jailers from, pro from depriving people of their life, liberty, or property without due process of law. In the context of a jail or a prison, it simply requires that similar people be treated equally. So it has a certain requirement of equal treatment. So in the jail standard, right, basically, if you're going to be found to be liable, if you're found to, uh, to have civil liability for a use of force, or indeed for not using force when it's necessary or not protecting the inmate when it's necessary, uh, then you're going to be, the standard under the federal courts apply is that uh, you're going to face civil liability when you demonstrate deliberate indifference to a substantial risk of physical harm. And that's, again, in a context of, again, if I'm, if I'm shoving somebody or I'm pushing somebody and that's unnecessary on the street, that might be a Fourth Amendment issue, it might be a 1983 issue. In the jail, the question is, well, were you deliberately indifferent to the substantial risk of physical harm? If you trip an inmate, that's bad. If I trip an inmate who's on the stairs for no reason other than just because I felt like it or to get revenge on the inmate for something they did, they said to me before and I didn't like it, that's me being deliberately indifferent to, the, to a substantial risk of physical harm, and I'm going to have a problem, right? That's not going to be good. So in order to determine whether or not you're being deliberately indifferent in violation of federal law, one, you have to know there's a substantial risk of harm, and two, you have to be disregarding that risk by acting inappropriately or failing to act. And again, I think that's interesting. It was certainly here, again, if I'm, if I'm mad at this inmate for something that he said yesterday to me and I want to just get revenge on him, that's me deliberately. I'm just trying to inflict pain. I don't have any justification for it. I just want revenge. I just want to hurt him. I want to see him in pain. So I decide to trip him while he's on the stairs. I know there's a substantial risk of harm and I nevertheless do it. That's going to cause him pain. But notice also here that if another inmate 
right, is going to shove that inmate down the stairs, right? And I do nothing about it. I stand there and I watch it happen. Maybe I just laugh about it. I'm deliberately indifferent to that risk of substantial harm to that inmate. Uh, I'm also going to be facing liability. And notice that's very different than out in the world in the Fourth Amendment context. As a law enforcement officer in public, law enforcement and the government in general doesn't have an obligation under the law to protect uh, one private person from another private, one private citizen from another private citizen. Um, there's no obligation on the part of the government to do that. But in the federal court's view, in a jail or a prison, you do have that duty regarding other inmates. So what would be some examples of this, right? Uh, well, there's a case called Grayson versus Pede, which is a great example. This is a 1992 case from the Fourth Circuit uh, where a guy is arrested for possession of marijuana. And he decides to resist. He resists his strip search. He gets pepper sprayed. Um, he fails to comply during, you know, with, uh, when they're bringing out meals. He's not. He refuses to put his arm back in the cell. Um, an officer tries to bring him his food. He jams his door open. Uh, deputies show up to get his get him to comply to get him to let let them close the door again which he's not letting them do so five deputies show up they pepper spray him they take him out of the cell they pin him to the ground they punch him repeatedly they cuff him they carry him face down he continues to resist they put him in four-point restraints um you know this is a pretty severe use of force right this is the kind of use of force you might see uh, online and you know people complaining about if it was in the street done by law enforcement for somebody who was doing something innocuous like holding a door open right um you know people might be outraged and you might end up in a federal lawsuit regarding that use of force but in the jail context in the view of the court uh, that fell within uh, reasonable behavior for a use of force. It had a penological justification. There was a reason for it. He was defying their commands. He was preventing them from properly running the jail. And so their use of force, that case was dismissed. Now it was dismissed on qualified immunity grounds. But again, in the eyes of the court, that wasn't a clear violation of his rights. And so that lawsuit uh, was not permitted to go forward. The court wrote, uh, the officers obviously felt the need to subdue him, either to calm the general environment or to prevent him from hurting himself. And in the eyes of the court, if they failed to accord due deference to the officers' actions, and this is the court writing here, we would give encouragement to insubordination. Now, that's pretty strong language, right? You wouldn't expect that uh, with the court talking about officer behavior on the street. But certainly it would uh, apply in a jail context. Now, that doesn't mean all uses of force are proper. And Hope versus Peltzer is a U.S. Supreme Court from 2002 where officers tied a prisoner to an outdoor hitching post for several hours. They didn't give him water. They didn't give him bathroom breaks. Um, they, but they tied him to a post and kept him out there. And why did they do it? Because he didn't want to work and they, he was refusing to work. Uh, in the eyes of the court, that was that's just that's just a wanton infliction of pain, right? There's no penological justification for that level of suffering. Um, Hudson versus McMillan is a case where they punched a prisoner repeatedly. He wasn't resisting. He wasn't defying commands. Uh, he was just walking down the hallway and you know punching him over and over again uh, to take him to lockdown. That was an abuse of uh, authority. It was a it was inflicting pain with a wanton uh, with a wanton disregard and w without any penological justification. So that's sort of how the federal courts apply the 1983, apply the Eighth Amendment to um, to uses of force by 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 jailers, by people who are uh, running a jail or a prison. 
And as we've mentioned before, you could also end up in state court, uh, not just federal court, but also state court for your uses of force against an inmate, either pretrial or serving a sentence. And again, that standard under state law uh, is gonna is not really going to change. It's going to be battery. It's going to be uh, negligence. Those are the two things that will open you up to liability. Well, what's battery? Well, it's a non-consensual touching without any lawful justification. So again, if you have an inmate in your custody, what's your lawful justification for your act? Uh, you know, for the officers in the Collins case where they uh, had to move him out of his cell and put him in four-point restraints because he continued to not comply. That's their justification, right? Their justification is we have to run a jail. He's not letting us run the jail. He's not letting us close the door to his jail cell. That's our lawful justification. Whereas punching an inmate for no reason who's not who's not resisting or anything like that, walking in the hallway, that's just a battery, right? You have no reason to be doing that. So that would be uh, open you up to liability under state law. And of course, you can also be liable for negligence uh, under state law as well, especially if you're in a situation where you're running a jail, you want to be concerned about gross negligence, utter lack of care that's equivalent to conscious disregard. Because even if what you're doing is some kind of special activity that gives you, that clothes you in sovereign immunity, if you show an utter lack of care equivalent to a conscious disregard for the safety of your inmates, then you're going to be liable even with that sovereign immunity. Right? Again, sovereign immunity is no protection from lawsuit. It simply raises the standard that someone has to prove in order to prove you to be liable under civil law. And if you, ha if you demonstrate an utter lack of care equivalent to a conscious disregard for the safety of your inmates, you're going to end up being liable. It's interesting, as I mentioned, though, that you have a higher standard regarding inmates, a higher obligation regarding inmates than you do to the general public. So if you're a sheriff who's been working the road for a while and you get switched over to the jail, you know, the, the people out in the public, the people out in the road, you don't owe them anything constitutionally speaking. But the people who are in your custody, you do owe them a duty of care. You do have to protect them under the U.S. Constitution. Uh, you have to protect them from each other. And there is some controversy about this, but I think there's, a, there's an argument to be made that you have to protect them from themselves. Now, there's a lot of controversy about this, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this suicide issue, but um, it suffice to say that the Supreme Court has sort of gone back and forth about whether or not uh, a jail has an obligation to protect somebody from uh, killing themselves or hurting themselves. Um, but there is a U.S. Supreme Court case called Farmer versus Brennan, uh, and this really demonstrates exactly where this obligation comes from. Uh, and Farmer was a was a uh, was a transsexual male inmate who was making a transition from uh, being a male to a female, and he had uh, during the course of his uh, incarceration, he'd gotten breast implants, he'd gotten testicle removal surgery. Um, he had been in segregation in federal correctional facilities, and when he was transferred to open population in a federal penitentiary, he filed a lawsuit alleging that putting him in, uh, open, in open population violated the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution. So the question becomes here for the court, for the U.S. Supreme Court, is there a duty to protect him from potential attacks by fellow inmates? and is failing to protect him a violation of the Eighth Amendment. 
Now, of course, you have to take measures to protect your inmates. And the Supreme Court agrees with that here, right? You have to take reasonable measures to guarantee the safety of your inmates and to protect prisoners from violence at the hands of other prisoners. Where does your liability start? Your liability starts when you know of and disregard an excessive risk to an inmate's health or safety. So the question in this case was, was did the jail know of and did they disregard an excessive risk to inmate health or safety? And here the U.S. Supreme Court said, you know, we just don't know the answer to that question. We want to have more facts. So they sent the case back to the lower court. But you can imagine a situation where you have a keep separate list that says, do not put this inmate in with members of the um, MS-13 gang because he's from a rabble gang or he testified against MS-13 members. And the, so you know of the risk to that inmate. And nevertheless, you say, well, you know what? We got too many people in this pod, so we're going to have to move him somewhere else. Or we need to transport him, and I don't want to spend a bunch of money on two different transport vans, so we'll just put them in the same transport van and we'll move them together from this one facility to another facility. Uh, or we'll take them to court together and disregard the keep separate order. Well, that's an excessive risk to that inmate's health or safety, right? Unless you can figure out some way to safely do that. And so if you know of it and disregard disregard it, then you're opening yourself up to liability. Um, again, there's a lot of debate, though, about what to do when you have inmates who are dangerous to themselves. Um, Short versus McCathron is a case from the Western District of Virginia from 2005, where deputies put an inmate who was, uh, they were concerned, potentially suicidal. They put him in a sick cell. Um, they, uh, he was wearing his street clothes. He was wearing his street shoes. They could hear banging. They could hear he was intoxicated because he had just been arrested. Um, they could hear banging from the cell. They went in and checked on him. He appeared to be asleep. Um, but they were required to check on him every um, 30 minutes. And between 7 o'clock and 7.30 in the morning, he still had his shoelaces on. He took his shoelaces, tied them, hide them uh, hung them from the ceiling bars, and uh, hung himself. The deputies who were working the camera didn't see that. Now, one of the issues is that the deputies didn't tell, the shift changed at seven o'clock in the morning. And so the deputies didn't tell, the, the deputies from the first shift who knew he was potentially suicidal, didn't tell the deputies from the next shift that he was potentially suicidal. So at this point, the deputy just did his regular checks. He didn't do anything special to check on him. They don't actually discover him dead until 9 p.m. But again, he died right around 7.30 p.m. So, you know, what, what are you supposed to do here? What, what are the issues? Well, number one, he was intoxicated. Uh, he was potentially, he potentially could have hurt himself. And the jail procedure said you need to take any self-destructive items off of him. So belt, shoelaces, they should have come off. He went to a sick cell and that was good, but they left his shoelaces on. That was bad. And potentially suicidal inmates, where there's a real danger, you're supposed to call mental health, you're supposed to put them in suicide smocks, uh, again, no shoelaces, and you're supposed to check their cell every 15 minutes, whereas normal cells are checked every 30 minutes. Um, here, the deputies were aware of the risk, and they failed to follow jail procedure. They failed, indeed, just to tell the next shift that this danger existed. And so that was problematic, right? The deputies who don't follow procedure, uh, who know of the risk and disregard the risk by not following their, their policies, they face a lot of liability here. 
Uh, what about the officers, by the way, who come in the next shift? And it's an interesting question, right? The deputies who follow up, you know, they don't know what the issue is. So they're not aware of the risk. So are they deliberately indifferent? And, the, and here the answer is no, not really, because they follow the procedure. They're, they do what they're supposed to do. Um, so, uh, so, you know, it's interesting because this case goes up to the Fourth Circuit and the Fourth Circuit says um, there is no obligation under the Eighth Amendment to stop somebody from hurting themselves. Uh, and they remand the case back. They really say the only deputy who, um, who, really, who really violates anything, who really violates this guy's rights, is the deputy who's not watching the camera properly, who's not following the camera every 15 minutes like he's supposed to. Um, and ultimately, that case goes to trial, and he's found not to be liable. But like I said, there's this real debate, and I think um, you know you see this issue come up all the time. It's kind of beyond the scope of what I want to do today in the podcast. Is you know what are your obligations to somebody to stop them from hurting themselves? And I would say the basic lesson here from this case is you really need to follow your procedures. Uh, you're going to be opening yourself up to a lot of liability if you don't follow the procedures that your agency has uh, has set up. But you know, medical needs go a lot, go far beyond somebody hurting themselves. You have people come in; they may be diabetic, uh, they may be uh, suffering from withdrawal, they may have very serious medical conditions. And while you, while the government owes them no obligation out in public, uh, you know, to give them, uh, you know, uh, treatment, to give them dialysis or to give them cancer treatment, as soon as they become your inmate. They absolutely become your responsibility. Again, whether they're a pretrial detainee or whether they're serving a sentence, you because they're in your custody, you have a duty to assure that they have adequate medical care. And you have to be uh, conscious of serious medical needs. Deliberate, being deliberately indifferent to serious medical needs in the eyes of the court is a violation of the, of the Eighth Amendment. It's, it's an unnecessary and wanton infliction of pain and therefore a violation of Fourth Amendment rights. So, you know, this isn't for any medical need. I mean, if somebody, you know, um, you know, has a cold or something like that, or they have, uh, you know, they need glasses, that kind of thing, that, you know, what we're talking about here is a serious need, a sufficiently serious need that requires medical treatment. Um, so, you know, somebody who comes in who's intoxicated, you don't have to send them to the hospital, right? But somebody who is so intoxicated, they're vomiting, uh, that they fall, they hit their head, that's somebody who has serious medical needs. Uh, that person may need to have medical treatment, and that's a case called Parrish versus Cleveland, which is a Fourth Circuit case from 2004. Um, you know, and that's, again, as opposed to somebody who's got uh, you know, muscle spasms, and the muscle spasms give them, uh, you know, make their back uncomfortable, makes their back, it gives them back pain, but it's not the kind of pain where it's debilitating, they can't walk, it's just, it pain, it hurts, right? Uh, there, the Fourth Circuit found in a case called Turner versus Kite, that uh, that was not sufficiently serious to require the jail to provide that treatment, right, to provide that pain medication, um, but of course, the Virginia law follows this, right? Uh, there's Virginia Code Section 53.1-126 that says that a sheriff shall purchase medicine as may be necessary. Um, now, nothing requires a sheriff to pay for medical treatment of an inmate for injuries or illness or conditions that exist prior to the inmate's commitment. But 
you cannot withhold treatment for communicable diseases, for serious medical needs, or for life-threatening conditions. Again, a need for dialysis, you're going to have to pay the bills for that. Uh, you know, cancer treatment, if the person has, you know, serious, uh, serious medical issue with cancer or life-threatening condition. Uh, obviously, communicable diseases, you've got a lot of experience with that with COVID and so on. Um, the sheriff's going to have to pay the bill for that. That's the locality's cost. Uh, and that can be very expensive. So you end up uh, having to pick up the medical treatment for somebody uh, who, while, they, while they're incarcerated, whereas a locality certainly wouldn't have to pay that if somebody were out, even out on bond. Uh, and it does create a tension sometimes, you know, where sheriffs want somebody to be released on bond because it's costing the county so much money. Um, and ability to pay is not an issue. Um, even if the inmate could and actually was paying for that treatment before they enter into custody, it becomes the sheriff's responsibility because now you have them in your custody. You've got to take care of them, which means maybe taking them to jail as well. I mean, taking them to jail, taking them to the hospital as well, taking them to medical treatment and so on, taking medical appointments uh, because now they're your responsibility. And so you can see that jails have a lot more responsibility to inmates under the Constitution and under Virginia law than uh, law enforcement officers do generally to people. And that's true really as well with First Amendment rights. Um, you, you know, out in public, obviously law enforcement can't interfere with people's First Amendment rights, but there's no obligation to... Um, you know, to, to do anything to assure their First Amendment rights. In jail, surprisingly enough, inmates, pretrial or serving a sentence, they still have First Amendment rights. Um, they're limited by, you know, the needs of the jail. And so limitations can be imposed, but only if they're reasonably related to legitimate penological interests. So jails can restrict inmate communications, inmate mail. They can, you know, they, inmates can't just talk to the media whenever they want. Uh, they can even restrict religious observances as long as those observances impede jail administration or security. But if they, uh, if the inmate mail doesn't interfere with the jail uh, process, right? Um, if the inmates, you know, communications don't interfere with the jail security, if the religious observance doesn't impede administration or security, it has to be allowed. And you see a lot of inmate First Amendment lawsuits uh, throughout the courts. Um, there are inmate lawsuits regarding, um, you know, membership in, in, in gang-like organizations where they argue, hey, this is a religious organization and I should be allowed to belong to this gang. The jail shouldn't be able to sanction me uh, for being part of this gang because this is part of my First Amendment right, uh, First Amendment religious rights. And the, the jails also have to offer access to courts, to law libraries, or adequate legal assistance uh, from people who are trained in the law. So, you know, when you hear about jails and prisons having law libraries, uh, that's because that's constitutionally required. There's a case called Lewis versus Casey, which is a 1996 case from the U.S. Supreme Court that says that you have to give sufficient access to, uh, to, to inmates to, um, to get legal materials, right? You don't have to provide them help law filing lawsuits like divorce lawsuits or custody or that kind of stuff. But if they want to challenge their criminal convictions or challenge their conditions of confinement, um, they need to be given adequate uh, access to, uh, to, 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 law, to legal materials, to a law library or access to the law. And of course, the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, applies in jails as well. Um, if you have an inmate, for example, who due to their disability, maybe they're in a wheelchair and they can't get up to the second floor and the second floor is where the drug treatment program is, you know, uh, you can't deny them, you can't exclude them from participating in drug treatment just by virtue of the fact that they're in a wheelchair. 
Um, and so it does apply. The U.S. Supreme Court um, has considered this issue. You know, it does. ADA does apply in jails. Now, again, you know, you, you, there's certain limitations. The ADA does not require um, full compliance all the time, but, you know, it can be an issue in the jail as well. So a lot of issues uh, regarding care and uh, care and use of force regarding inmates under the law. That's a really quick overview, but I thought it might be useful for all you guys to know sort of what the differences are between how the law treats citizens on the street and how the law treats inmates. Um, and I hope it was useful. I hope it was interesting for you. Um, if you've got other ideas that you'd like me to cover in the podcast, let me know. I'm always happy to uh, to talk about um, new issues. If you've got a, if you've got questions or you know something that you'd like me to talk about, if you like the podcast, uh, tell your friends. Uh, we are on Stitcher Podcasts. We're on SoundCloud. We're on Apple Podcasts. I can get on another platform if you like other platforms. If you don't like the podcast, don't tell your friends. Uh, but that's all from me from today. That's all from Big E. Uh, so for all of you out there, stay safe. And don't get captured.